Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 2020 episode of The Brick, our monthly podcast series from the Brickstore Museum. I'm your host, Cynthia Walker, the museum's director. Today, we're going to look at how emotions of the past can compare to the present. We'll hear an archival news bulletin, listen to part two of our recent conversation with James Pastorelli, a local World War II veteran. If you haven't heard the first part, you'll find that in our February 2020 podcast episode. In the spirit of Memorial Day coming up, we'll also hear a Civil War story of two soldiers from Wells and Kennebunk. And then we'll talk a little bit about reopening plans and the pandemic in the museum's Digital Learning Center. If you haven't done so already, I'll remind you that the museum produced a special edition of our Brick podcast last month that reviewed our local history of pandemics in our past. As always, thanks for listening. It is often said that history repeats itself. Yet it is humans that repeat themselves, and history acts as a roadmap to the future. What to avoid, what to adjust, when to stay the course, and when to forge ahead. Our relationship to this map depends on how we understand its makers, the people. We relate to and understand others through empathy and shared experience. This is the reason for the Brickstore Museum's existence. It's a strange thing in the 21st century to feel alone. During the COVID-19 pandemic, perhaps you are alone with family members or by yourself, or you are alone at work or alone in your thoughts. If history shows us anything, whether today or 200 years ago, it shows that we are never alone in our experiences and we all belong to something greater than ourselves. As an example, there is a letter we have in our archives. It was written in 1811 by a local war veteran and ship captain named James Fairfield, who traveled around the world and back again. Here's what he said. Charleston, South Carolina, June 21st, 1811. Dear wife, I don't know, but I shall tire your patience in writing you so often, but I wish I could have letters enough from you to keep me employed one half of my time. As I have nothing to employ myself about at present, and I've read your letters so often that I shall be glad to have another from you, which I have been expecting for some days, but finding none. 
I write you again as this is my only means of conversing with you. To be so near you and not able to see you is the greatest aggravation I've ever experienced. If I don't get letters soon, nor no freight for Europe, I think I shall try to get a small freight to Boston and come up. For if I lay here long, the worms and the extremes will eat the vessel all up. And I'm heartsick of this place, for it is hot enough to burn the flesh off the bones. Should I get freight for Europe, I shan't be at home before late in the fall or first of winter, my dear. I hope this will find you in good health and likewise all our friends. I give my loving respects to you all and I'm still looking for letters which I hope soon to find. It has been hard being here nearly two months and received but one letter. So may God bless you, my dear Lois, and preserve your health is the wish of your affectionate husband until death. James Fairfield. Captain Fairfield's words to his wife, to be so near you and not able to see you is the greatest aggravation I have experienced, may be similar to emotions that each of us have felt in these days of COVID-19. The museum's mission is to be the spark that ignites personal connections to local history, art, and culture. With the onset of COVID-19, we lost the ability to do this in a physical way. Our exhibitions have gone quiet, but our mission has not gone away. We continue engaging audiences through digital activities, volunteerism, research, community diaries, and more. We hope that you might use these resources, all found on the Digital Learning Center on our website, until we are all able to be near each other again. A couple of highlights of what you'll find on the Museum's Learning Center a community diary in which we ask you to tell us about your mom and dad, or recently digitized archival materials that are typically in boxes, now available for your use, vintage cookbooks to test a recipe or two, a 16th century portal where you'll find pop-up exhibits on Native American stories of the Kennebunks, and hear from two local archaeologists on current work being done in this area to glean more from our landscape. Coming up, we're producing several new lectures and an interactive discussion called the Museum Roundtables, in which we'll be inviting members of our community to join a group discussion on our histories and our lives. Above all, everyone's story matters here. And now it's time for an archival news bulletin. We've selected two articles this time, which were printed in archival newspapers here at the museum, to share with you. The first one comes from the Kennebunk Star, which was the precursor to the York County Coast Star, printed on October 11, 1918. Last Sabbath was the first Sunday in nearly 16 years that a church bell was not sounded for a call to worship by reason of an epidemic. In January 1903, the townspeople were considerably excited by a number of smallpox cases. The Board of Health took prompt action, closed the churches, schools, public library, and other assemblies. The almshouse was turned into a pest house, in charge of a Mr. and Mrs. Hilton of Gardner. Six patients were taken there, all stores were disinfected, Bowden selling 200 formaldehyde generators. The selectman's room was optioned for a free vaccination 
and Dr. Bourne vaccinated about 175. The disease was of a mild type and said to have been brought here from Biddeford by a boy who had been afflicted and subsequently attended the grammar school. The churches resumed services January 11th and the schools January 19th, all pupils being required to give evidence of satisfactory vaccination before admittance. Our next feature also comes from the Kennebunk Star, but was printed about six months later on April 11th, 1919. Much expected from this baby. Not every baby is blessed with six great-grandparents, four grandparents, as well as a father and a mother, when entering this world of joy. But this was the good fortune that greeted Dorrance Alton Drown when he arrived at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence Drown in Lyman on Tuesday, April 1st. At first, Dorrance thought it was a joke, and not until the list was produced did he show approval and consent to take a nap. His four great-grandmothers are Mrs. Jackson Colby of Wells, Mrs. Julia Drown of Lyman, Mrs. Adeline Stevens of Kennebunk, and Mrs. Mary Tarbox of Kennebunk. His great-grandfathers are Charles H. Tarbox and Charles Stevens, both of Kennebunk. Mr. and Mrs. Stevens of the Landing are his maternal grandparents, and Mr. and Mrs. Weston Drown of Lyman, his paternal grandfather and grandmother. His uncles and aunts are many. Just think of the Christmas and birthday presents that are in store for this baby. So what you just heard was taken from the headlines of a couple of our Kennebunk Star newspapers that are here in our archives. If you're interested in doing research in our newspaper collection, I encourage you to visit our website to see how. I wanted to take the time to announce a virtual event we've got coming up. The Brickstore Museum is partnering with the Historical Society of Wells and Ogunquit to bring you the Bicentennial Distance Challenge. It's a great opportunity to get outside and celebrate history in a physical way. This is a virtual run, walk, or bike that asks you to travel a distance of seven miles. A virtual race means that you sign up and register like any other fundraising race, but then you are free to choose your own course, your own race day, and simply send us the results of your completed challenge. So why are we asking you to run seven miles? The reason is our shared history. Before 1820, Kennebunk was a part of the town of Wells. Communities were then designated as parishes, and the church or parish was an essential meeting place. At the time, people in the Kennebunk district of Wells had to travel about seven miles, usually by foot or by horse, to the First Congregational Parish of Wells, which is actually now home to the Historical Society um, in Wells. It's near or across the street from Hannaford um, and near the CVS, if you're ever driving by on Route 1. And those folks would have to travel seven miles in order to attend meetings. In 1750, these residents founded their own parish, which they called the Second Congregational Parish of Wells, and it was located at Kennebunk Landing along the Kennebunk River. Reverend Daniel Little was its first minister. The parish moved to what is now the First Parish Unitarian Universalist Church on Main Street on land donated by Joseph Storer in 1772. By the time 1820 came around, the two parishes in Wells and Kennebunk sat seven miles away from each other 
and that's where members of the Second Congregational Parish of Wells voted to separate and become its own town. So get active and support local history. The race kicks off on June 24, 2020, and you can complete your race anytime between June and October 17th of this year. Our kickoff will include a full live Zoom lecture on the history of Wells and Kennebunk's separation, which occurred just three months after Maine became its own state. We're excited about this race, because you can run your race at your pace and on a course of your choice, as long as it's seven miles, you can choose to complete it for speed, break it up into one-mile sections per day, or do anything you want to complete that seven miles. We'll have fun prizes for a variety of times and creative courses and other things in between. Hopefully by October we can celebrate a group finish line with a celebration at the museum. Let me tell you what this 7-mile challenge supports. Registration is $35 per person and $10 for children under 16. All of this funding supports local history, art and culture education, preservation and exhibitions within Kennebunk and Wells by fundraising for the Brickstore Museum and our partners the Historical Society in Wells as well as other cultural nonprofits in our area that have been affected by COVID-19 who will receive support from our funds raised. I encourage you to follow our Facebook page and website to learn about course and running tips, course suggestions that will guide you through historic locations, and of course provide updates to our challenge program. Everyone who signs up will receive a packet with their unique commemorative bib number that you can wear during your race, all sorts of detailed challenge information for runners, walkers, and bikers, and a short history of that seven-mile difference between the two towns. In October, everyone who participated over the age of 16 will receive a participant medal designed to celebrate the town and the state bicentennials this year. We also hope to have a finish line celebration at that point in the year, but that remains to be determined. I want to thank our race sponsor, Southern Maine Healthcare, and the museum's annual supporter, Kennebunk Savings, for helping us to celebrate the Bicentennial in this fun new way. The easy way to register for the Bicentennial Distance Challenge is to visit our website, brickstoremuseum.org, and follow the links to our Run Sign Up page. At the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, 628,000 people inhabited Maine, almost half of whom were under the age of 21. Maine answered President Lincoln's call for volunteers immediately, and overall, Maine contributed 72,945 men to the war effort, including 24 Union generals, which stands as the largest number of soldiers sent to war in proportion to population than any other Union state. Maine regiments took part in many famous battles, but also suffered through the long-forgotten ones. The Civil War affected millions of families throughout our nation, including those of Mainers. Of the 72,945 men sent to war, 9,398 men died in service. It is estimated that over 11,000 were disabled by wounds or disease. A quarter of the state's male population, or 11% of Maine citizens in the 1860s, became soldiers. This is the story of two soldiers of the 1st Maine Cavalry, a regiment that lost the greatest number killed in action 
of any cavalry regiment in the army. I came upon this story while researching our exhibit, which was called From the Kennybunks to Appomattox, The Civil War at Home and Away, which was put on for the 2012 season. There were two men, both in the 1st Maine Cavalry, that were listed in our records, and both were listed with a wife of the same name, Harriet Shorey. And I wondered, well, how could that be? Charles C. Goodwin was born on June 28, 1839, in Wells. His parents, Clement and Patience, were listed as farmers in the 1850 census. According to his enlistment papers, Goodwin enlisted in the 1st Maine Cavalry on October 21, 1861, mustering in 10 days later as a private. After five months of fighting in the South, he was promoted to corporal on March 1, 1862. His military career progressed quickly. He served as an orderly for General Porter until the Second Battle of Bull Run, afterward reporting to General Pope. On September 14, 1862, Goodwin was the bearer of dispatches to General Reno at the Battle of South Mountain. During a discussion between the two men, Reno was shot and killed while on his horse. Goodwin led the horse, with the dead general, through the melee and off of the battlefield. Later, as an orderly for General Burnside at the Battle of Antietam, he had his horse shot out from under him in the charge across the Stone Bridge. On March 3, 1863, Goodwin became a sergeant during the Shenandoah Valley Campaign. The second man, Henry Shorey, was born in about 1836 in Waterville. He married a woman named Harriet Corson of Canaan in 1853, when he was about 18 and she was about 16. By 1860, they lived in Wells with four children. He worked as a shoemaker. The family had moved to Kennebunk shortly thereafter, where Henry Shorey mustered in as a private in the 1st Maine Cavalry on January 26, 1864. He was probably one of 300 men that reported to General Kirkpatrick for duty in the expedition to Richmond, which later failed. Henry Shorey and Charles Goodwin both lived in Wells prior to the war, so it's probable that they knew each other before the start. If not, it is certain that they knew each other during the fighting as they were in the same regiment. On July 23, 1864, Charles Goodwin was taken prisoner at Snickers Ferry and transported to Winchester, Virginia. Six days later, he escaped. Henry Shorey, who continued to fight with the regiment, was wounded three months later in the fight at Boydton Plank Road on October 27th and became a prisoner of the Confederacy as well. From there, he was sent to a place called Libby Prison, famous for its reputation of harsh conditions for inmates. Over 50,000 men passed through this prison during the war. The lack of sanitation caused rampant and widespread disease. Believing that Shorey died during the battle, the Union Army sent word to his wife that he had been killed. In November of 1864, Kennebunk journalist Andrew Walker noted that Harriet Shorey received a letter from her believed-to-be-dead husband, writing from prison. Overjoyed by the news of his surprising survival, she was devastated again less than a month later, when Henry Shorey died of his wounds in Libby Prison on December 7, 1864, at 29 years of age. 
Mere weeks before, Charles Goodwin mustered out of service on November 25th and returned home to Wells. What I discovered in archival documents was that Charles Goodwin married Henry Shorey's widow, Harriet, on July 18, 1865, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Though it seems that the seven-month period between the death of her first husband and her second marriage is short, we must consider that she was stranded alone with four young children at a time when women did not work outside the home and had no other way of supporting herself. It is probable that she knew Charles Goodwin before the war. By 1900, the Goodwins had four more children and lived in Portland, Maine, until Harriet's death in March 1900. Henry Shorey is buried in an unknown grave, probably in Virginia. Most of the dead from Libby Prison were buried after the war in Richmond National Cemetery, where over 88% of the Civil War dead are unknown. And now, here is our part two of our interview with James Pastorelli, local World War II veteran, who is sharing a little bit more about his experiences in Europe in the 1940s. So then we finally got pontoons. We crossed the Rhine River on pontoons. That was the big move, yeah, cross the river. We were the first the 71st Infantry Division. We met Russians on the uh, Steyr on the Enns River. Steyr, S-T-E-Y-R. Steyr, Austria. yeah. We met the Russians. So the, uh, so I had been around the various communities checking, uh, you know. Right, right. By this time, Major Neal, I don't know where he disappeared to oh, for two weeks. So yeah, I, I was all by myself, you know. And uh, so finally I got up to this, Kirkminster Stiff, which is an abbey. And uh, the, the abbot came out to see me. He said, uh, uh, and then I talked with him for a while, and I said, uh, uh, what, what are you, uh, he said, I got something to show you. He said, <laughs> the place was full of booze. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what, what do I do with this? Uh, I said, what? I said, don't you dare give it away, sell it, or anything. I said, you keep it right there, and I, I said, I'll let you know where it's going, what's happened to it. So the, I come back, you know, and uh, the agent said to me, he said, Sarge, he said, tell me, where, where should we get some booze? I said, well, what's going on? He said, the, the general, he says, having a big party, General Wampus having a party with the Russians. We had to wait eight days for the Russians to come up to Steyr. Uh -huh. And uh, he said, we're having a big party. And uh, he said, so them. And he said, we need some booze. I said, don't worry about it. I said, give me a driver and a three-quarter ton truck. <laughs> <laughs> so I back up to see the Abbott. So I said, well, I took a whole bunch of stuff you know, down there, filled the, filled the truck up. They must have thought you were a magical guy to pull this off. <laughs> well, anyway, we got down. We went across the Rhine, uh, across the Enns River. Yeah, and uh, we had the tables all set up, the food, everything was all set up. I was on, uh, and and General Wyman driver were the only two uh, non-commissioned officers in the crowd. But we could not sit at the table. Uh -huh. with them, but we sat off on the, on the could, side. You could make all the arrangements. And you uh, meet. there was a Russian uh, woman officer. That, that was uh, yeah. Uh, right, no, she was an enlisted person. 
And she may have been her general store driver, I don't know. <laughs> but we swapped charge of stuff with her, you know. Couldn't speak with her, you know. Right, no, no. In Russia. So uh, the party went off with a big bang. So uh, he come Monday, Tuesday there, as he says to me, he said, Jim, he said, any of that liquor left up, up there? I said, what's up? He says, well, he said, uh, uh, Colonel Lundquist, he was head of the 14th Infantry Regiment. He said, we're going down, we're going to have a party with the, uh, with the overseeing colonel from the Russians uh -huh, uh, okay. this Saturday night. He said, we need some more, uh, more you know what. I said, no, there's more up there. So I went back up there with a loaded the whole thing up, and I said, uh, I left the whole bunch. And I said, Dad, what, what do I do with it? I said, that's for you. For the abbot? For the abbot. That's for you. You can keep this. Oh, thank you, he said. He was so happy. <laughs> well, Joe, we're sitting there. Six o'clock was supposed to be the, the time of the meal. Six came, seven came, eight o'clock came, no Russians. Curtain came down. Oh. One party, that was all. They were so Russians. And then it really began. You knew what was ahead yep. in terms of the Iron Curtain and yep. yep. that interesting. We quickly. knew right there that night. Yeah. The war was only over two weeks. We knew right there then. That was Shades of the Cold War to come. That was the days like Churchill announced the Cold War. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, but that's, we knew right then and there that was the end. And how, how long was that after that first party? One week. One week. The following Saturday. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, the curtains come down. There's no more parties. Well, you, you were on no the... Kind of fraternization. No. Isn't that fascinating? But, uh, the, but our real job after that was we were transferred to... Uh, we were in this military government. So from headquarters that was established in Munich. That was our headquarters. They had the first, second, and third military government regiments. I was in the third regiment. And uh, we were then distributed to various communities, towns, cities. I was sent down to the E-235, G-235, that was in uh, Rosenheim, Germany. And uh, we were then took over st uh, city and county, or Stadtland, as they say in German. Uh, we were, and I was the, on the first floor, I was the, uh, 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 I was the, like, uh, how do you call it? I had control of all the, uh, on the lower level, I had control of all the people that came to see and make applications. You were the first line of yeah, defense. I, yeah. I was a 502, which was a non-trauma. Yeah. And that's uh, administrator, I was administrator. And uh, I had the interview of all the people. See, this was, we were, I was there 10 months. 
and this is what really what our job was. We took over and operated the city and the county government. Now, the, the reason being, of course, that they didn't want any Nazi... No, that's right. Everything had to be sifted out. Yeah. And we used to run into the uh, you know, intelligence groups. They were all around and stuff and so forth. We had UNRWA, everything. All, all the people moved in. Red Cross, sure. UNRWA. They all ate in our house. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to put the run on them. Anyway, so this one day, there was a big headline in the paper, Carter and Lawson for SS. Before that, we discharged the German army. What do you mean you discharged them? Yeah, we, we, we discharged them, actually. I don't know how the process went, because yeah. we weren't part of that. But you scenario. literally... We were told that this army, uh, German army had been dis discharged. So I knew it had to be done, and I was the one who went over and told the people in the uh, uh, field, uh, we gathered the uh, prisoners, prisoners, yeah, yeah so forth. So I went over and talk, talk, said to the general, "Das Krieg ist damit beendet. The war is ended." That was the major. One girl, German officer, right there, she said, "Gott sei Dank." He was happy. You never saw happier people in your life. Yeah, isn't that interesting? They knew that their fate would have been sealed if they had fought any longer. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I know another anecdote, too, was that uh, I was going through the countryside one day, and this old lady was out front. So I stopped her, and I talked to her for a few minutes, and uh, she said, come. She said, she complained to me about there was nothing to eat. No, she took me in and she said, I'm going to show you. So I got down and I see in the corner of a cellar there, you know, in a triangle, a big bunch of potatoes. And she says to me, Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. Strike a tafel and das ist alles. Two potatoes and that's all. <laughs> so much for Germany over everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I gave her something, to, uh, you know, I had some candy. And stuff. I always carried stuff with me. That was a good move, because yeah. you knew that was an opening door. Yeah. So, uh, but we were there for, t I was there for 10 months. So that night there was the China and Lassen set. So I said, Charlie, what are all those people? This young lad. Matter of fact, he just died 2007. I corresponded with him ever all since. All those years. All I'll those years, yes. He was about 16 years old. And uh, he was my runner. And I said, what are all those people doing out there? And then I see them all lined up. He said, they want to come talk to you. I said, what for? He said, did you, did you see the headline last night? Yeah, and he showed me the paper. I said, oh, no discharge for the SS. Kind of lots of SS. Ah, the woman comes in. First, I said, well, send that lady in. And I said, I'll talk to her. Then she came out and she went, my man was Nick Freiwillig. She was not a volunteer. See, SS was all volunteers. But the thing which we did not know and understand was the last six months of the war, they were drafted into the SS. Oh, really? Well, that information I had to send back to the, the major upstairs. I said, Major, we got a, something. These people are all lined up. I said, I, I've heard enough. Finally, I said, Charlie, dismiss the people. Tell them we have a, taken under advisement. 
And uh, so we had to correspond with Munich, and then they uh, corresponded with uh, our information that we had with the State Department and so forth. So now, in terms of determining true, truly whether somebody was SS or not, there were records. Oh, yes. The Germans kept records, obviously, oh, so you so could oh, determine that. Oh, yeah. Oh, there were great records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, the Germans are very precise in what they do. <clears throat> Interesting uh, how that uh, that SS designation made a big difference in terms of how you treated well, them, or the so Americans. Then uh, you, you, I had the people running into me and say, I, that general, that guy down there, he's a grosser SS. <laughs> you know, he's a big SS man. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I passed all this information on to the intelligence sources. What you were doing there was going on all over Germany, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Every, every community and every county. Yes. In order to denazify. Uh, Rosenheim was a city, and we had the county of Rosenheim. Yeah. And we operated in that until uh, uh, 1st of October, 1946. A year later? Yeah, and what we did, we handed it back to the Germans. And then they took over the government again? They took over their government and everything. Yeah. Now we ended. Now, the Russian sector, how far was that? Obviously, you were in the Western sector. Where, where was that East German, West German border, and when was it set up so that you knew you had no authority? Oh, uh, well, we knew that was uh, around the area of Primasens. In, in Germany, on the other side was where the Russians were. And so you. So we knew exactly where they were. Uh, they were on the Enns River. Uh huh. On, uh, and that was the border, on, on more or, or less. On the other side there. was uh, where the Russians were. Yeah. They eventually, of course, gave the uh, country back to the Austrians. The only country they ever gave back. That is odd that Stalin must have had a hiccup or something. Well, I think they did such a devastating job there, and I think that got the, uh, everybody's dander all through Europe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they, it was a brutal what they did to the Austrians. How far were the community that uh, uh, my German is tar terrible, but where you were, how far is that from Munich, the, the community? Oh, Wolzenheim uh, from Germany, it's probably about uh, two to three hours. Oh, that far? Yeah. Yeah. Driving a couple of hours, or so, so, yeah. That's going south. Yeah, we were go we were south. Yeah. Of, Mu uh, of, uh, of Munich. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of Munich. Interesting. Uh, so uh, that's that's what our job was: is to run the uh, the government, the city, and and the county government, and that's what we did. Essentially, moving it toward democracy, really. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, now, they the. the Prison camp, the uh, concentration camp. Were you involved in that? Yes, yes. This book here, Joe, shows the. I left this up. This is all the prison camps in in uh, Europe, which That's were a lot of them. Yeah, and this was uh, the seventy first came through Gunslager Lager. Yeah. That's one of the two things, Joe, I, I, that I had that were really a displeasure. That's an understatement. What I saw in that camp, I went through every one of the of the uh, barracks. Oh, you did? 
I never want to see anything like that. You talk about inhumanity to people. I've seen that. I never see that. I came, before I came over this morning, Yes. Uh, you probably know that on the internet there are all these films of, yes. these, of this uh, yeah. event and of the liberation of that camp uh, and the horror that you see. And I can imagine why it's such an emotional thing even now, terrible, the horror. Terrible, George. You talk about humanity against man. You saw it there. And the amazing thing, this was one of over a hundred of oh. those camps. We passed by some of the other ones because we didn't have any, uh, but that was in our territory. So, but there were 15,000 there. They were Hungarian Jews. The, did, did I read somewhere that the place was built for something like 800 people and there were 15,000 or something? Oh, yeah. And, um, Just crowded. Oh, but you see the bodies lying on, you see the bodies lying on the bed, the feces and everything else. This, this is fascinating and depressing. Terrible, terrible sight, terrible. Well, what, what, now this is a, a stupid question to ask somebody with your faith and your uh, sense of, sense of what the world could be and should be. What was your first impression walking into this thing? How could man be so inhuman? to somebody else. That's the first thing I looked around. And the other thing is some soldiers, he had a piece of bread, threw it on the ground, and 20 people rushed to get the one piece of bread. I took out my gun. I said, I pointed at him. I said, don't you ever do that again. Yeah, you can't do that. That's, that's... I said, you, don't you ever do that again. And of course, uh, they were leaving the camps, you know, then the Germans ran except the ones we captured. And they were down hacking horses. You know, the last six months of the war, the Germans were using horse-drawn uh, uh, yeah, yeah. artillery pieces. And they were down there slicing up people, gouging stuff with food. But we had to get the people in the, the city there. We had to have them, all kinds of people come in to help them. It was. Oh, uh, you mean the, the people from the community nearby? Community, very well. Uh, that must have been a... Ask any of them. We didn't know what went on. Yeah, yeah. I questioned someone. I told them, I threw them off. I said, yeah, you don't know what went on. Of course you know what was going on. You must have been able to smell that if you oh, couldn't geez. see it. Oh, Joe, don't talk about it. The smell was... Uh, oh, yeah. I visited last summer Dachau. Terrible, terrible. Horrible. It's, of course, a much bigger place. Oh, but the, big, big chunks. The ovens were there. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Interestingly, I had two years, just as an anecdote, a side note, uh, over at the college, the, at the same time the boy who wrote that paper was in the class, yes. uh, there was a gentleman who lives in Portland today uh, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, and he came and talked to the, well, it was open enough to the community people from Wells and Kennymark and the students, uh, but he said uh, recently he had talked at a high school in Maine, that would have been five, six years ago, and a woman accosted him after the, after the presentation, and she said, how can you tell these things? You know that never happened. 
There are still people today who deny that. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. There is. There is. There's no question. My other uneventful event I like, what I'd like to give you, it's, this was heart-rendering. At the time that the Russians were all but annihilating the Austrians, they also, Tito took over the uh, Balkans. And uh, there was a lot, Yugoslavia was made up of three different forces, the communists under Tito, there was the St. Peter men, and there was Mihailovic, and he had a, a following. And say, say, uh, so the country was divided, yeah, literally. That's right. And the Mihailovic people and the uh, 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 Peter's people, they got into uh, our area, crossed the border. So there was a question about what we were going to do with these people. You know, like, uh, we sent all a million people back to uh, Russia, to uh, Ukrainians and so forth. And you know what happened to them? Yeah. They got back, uh, Stalin uh, eliminated all of them. Killed a million people. You know, what they sent back. A million people. That had been captured or they had been in the well, they Germany. Worked in, they, were, they worked in Germany. Yeah, and then so Germany, now you go home. Germans sent a lot of these people, uh, you know, Polish people and so forth. They sent them home. They were annihilated, killed, murdered by Stalin. Well, we had this whole bunch of people now from these two units. So, uh, and the and the colonel, uh, Major, I mean, he said, "What are we supposed to do with these people?" And I said, "Well, I said, what does what does my uh, headquarters say?" You know, I thought it was my his secretary. Yeah, yeah. lived in the home with me, and uh, he said, "We don't know." We said, "We have to wait for the State Department to make a decision on them." Well, the decision came through. We were supposed to send them back. My job was to go out and tell these people that we're sending them back to Tito, to back to Yugoslavia. They begged me, please, please don't send us back there. He's gonna kill us, all of us. So I made another pitch, you know, to the adjutant and so forth. I said, can we talk again to the State Department or something for these people and so forth? Well, they, they went to sources again, come back. He said, uh, he said oh, no, they're, they're to be sent back. Whether that was a, something was a deal with Roosevelt and Stalin or something, or with somebody, who knows. Well, I went out and I had to tell them. And these two particular guys were sort of head of the units. And they said, uh, we're not going to. I said, the train is going to be coming soon to take you people back to Europe. He said, we won't get on the train. We won't get on. So the train land, landed and uh, could not get on the train. I went and talked to the engineer. I said, tell the colonel. I said, they won't go on the train. I said, I'm not going to force them on the train. He said, well, we went to sources and they said, no. You've got to send them back. 
So I said, give me a company of, of, of what then? I said, that's what, uh, what we have to do. Down there, we had about three or four hundred soldiers, our soldiers. We literally lifted them, carried them, and put them on the, on the uh, boxcars, little on the boxcars. We had to seal the cars. I looked at that train going down the track, and I said, poor people. I said, uh, three weeks later, Hell comes and taps me on the arm, comes in to see me. I said, what you, what's up? And he said, well, he said, well, I'll tell you what happened. He said, we got down into a special place down in the field. And he said, it was forest and something place. He said, they opened the boxcars, and they machine gunned everybody to death. He said, there were a few of us who were very fortunate that jumped out and ran into the forest. And he said, I and another fellow, and I would come back to tell you exactly what happened. I wanted you to know. I said, I said, my, I said our hands were tied. I said, but the State Department made their decision. I said, they couldn't do anything about it. I said, I'm sorry we had to put you on the cards, but that was my instructions. Is there somewhere in the bureaucracy of the wherever the records are kept that is that story ever been told? I mean, that's a horrible story. Never been told. That's I'm the only one that knows, except some of the soldiers put them on the trains. Yeah. That and what? What? Uh, where was the town that you sent them from? That was uh, that was from. Uh, Rosenheim. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. God. That's all in the name of war and uh, defeat. It's always the same. War is hell. Yeah, well. You know, that's what it is. But to live with not just you, but anybody involved in those kinds of things for the rest of one's life, oh. that's a horrible thing. Oh. And think of those poor souls. <laughs> You know, you never, you never know anything what, what it's, what it's going to be, and, you yeah. know, and, and of course, the, the German 88 was one of the finest weapons in the, in World War II. Yeah, hugely. And they chased us up the street one day, and, and, and Neil says to me, what do we do, what do we do? <laughs> he said, that crazy smoke said it's down the wrong road. <laughs> and I said, look, I said, up at this corner up there, I said, there's a couple of machine gun nests. And I said, you jump right, I'm going to go left. <laughs> I jumped right down on top of about five German soldiers who were dead. No kidding. <laughs> soldiers, yeah. 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 They did the same. They yeah. had the armor come through when I guess they had blown them out. Those, those 88s were everything. They're anti-aircraft. They could do anything. Oh, yeah. They were you know, overhead. Yeah. What is they, they were firing so. overhead at us. And I, he said, get that cat going, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> the Jeep. And that was the Jeep that I That's the same Jeep? Jeep? Yeah. That's the Jeep. <laughs> and you see what that crossbar is up top? Yeah, explain that. I don't think these ladies might recognize. What the Germans did, they would take wire. They put it across the road, and you go by uh, with that wire there, snap your head right off. And so we had to have those to cut the wire. So etched would cut the wire. You see that on almost every photograph of Jeeps during, uh, oh, yeah, particularly after the Battle of the Bulge, 
Yeah. yeah. That uh, that was frightening. Now, was that when that incident in uh, as you sent those folks off to Yugoslavia? Was that toward the end of '46? Yeah, well, it was in 40, yeah, 46. It was in 46. I think it was in 46 when yeah. we sent them back. They, oh. were, they were there for a while. Yeah. 45, 46. Uh, I'm not sure, just it may have been in. No, it wasn't winter time. It wasn't winter. So it must have. It could have been the end of 45. Because we were already in, uh, in Rosewood. Yeah. Rosenheim at the time. We were there in August. So they sent, you know, sent us to see him. I had on my first floor, there were six officers. <laughs> one of them, three, three fellows come in one day and they showed me, uh, they said, we'd like to speak with you. And they said, we had on a personal matter. And I said, uh, what, what are you? And uh, he said, can we close the door? He said, we have word that someone in this unit uh, here, I said, that has uh, been stealing pictures out of castles, this, that, and everything else. Your art and things? Yeah. I said, uh, we know of it. He said, where is that? He was a uh, captain. He said, where is he? I said, I know where he is. I said, I won't tell you folks. I won't tell you where he went or his name. Thank you very much for that information. I think you'll find him there. He left the country. <laughs> but uh, he was in his own, where he originally uh, was born. Aha. Uh -huh. That's, that's where, he, where he was. I said, you'll find him there. He's stolen all kinds of pictures of him. Out of Catholic, someone, somebody said. Well, that that art worth a lot of yeah. money, you know. That well, some of that's still being recovered. Yeah. Even now. Yeah, I tell you that the, the other thing is too that during the war, you think that you know, all these people that were all related uh, through through uh, royalty. And mm. everything else. I had one one place to get into, and and. and one family that was in this castle, they had 50 other of their families and uh, relatives and so forth in there living with them. You mean because their, their homes had been uh, uh, yeah. destroyed and everybody was coming together is essentially yeah, to... Yeah. Now, you mentioned going, as you moved into Germany, you came across all these communities that were blasted to pieces. Yeah, some of them were used down there. Nothing, nothing left of them. Nothing. They couldn't do anything with some of them. You know? Yeah. And of course, uh, what what happened to uh, <laughs> to uh, old Georgie? You know, two pistols. I was uh, I was uh, from here to Alexandra from uh, from from George really? during the war. Yeah. And was, uh, <laughs> and was he wearing the pearl handled pistols? Oh, he had those on. Yes. You know, but. <laughs> They, they took they took his gasoline away from him. Oh, so for the stopped, tanks. Stopped the tanks. Yeah, yeah. He he wanted he wanted to go right right, right to Berlin. And know. probably should have been allowed to. And there was a lot of questions afterwards if someone did him in. But I, I I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it was really true. Yeah. But, but that uh, that's very that's a bit of murky history. Yeah. Yeah. 
very murky. Well, so, that went well. I, I, I know of a, a clergyman taking with his three quarter ton, that's part of three quarter ton. He was taking stuff out of houses. Yeah. And a clergyman. I, a clergyman. I said, shame on him, stealing something out of people's homes. Yeah. But that went on. Well, I'm sure it did. It uh, went on. There's no, no question about it. When you get into Germany, uh, a lot of people had, certain people had a hatred for them, you know. Uh, well. Now, speaking of that, after, uh, given the way you finished your career as a soldier, dealing with the German people, uh, and then in business, <laughs> essentially... With German people. With German people. Um, did, did it ever... Uh, did you ever feel any sort of animosity after the war to Germans? No. Can you explain? Felt, that's not my personality. No, I don't feel animosity towards anybody. That's a, there are a lot of folks. I might not like people, but I certainly and I don't love them. But but I well, never show any ill feelings or distress about them. When you went into business with Volkswagen, yeah. obviously that that was a you were dealing, I'm sure, with a lot of folks who had been on the other side for a while because that was. Oh yeah, some, some, a lot of them. Were, everybody in Germany was in the army or or, sure. or, or, or someplace. Yeah, you know. had to have been. Yeah, because they weren't going to get off under Germany under Hitler. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we didn't see Hitler, but the Russians got him. Let's hope. No, yeah. he's gone. <laughs> he was today. We every now and then, oh, Hitler's here. Hitler's they went to the redoubt up in the mountains and all that nonsense. You know. <laughs> 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 he shot himself. He didn't want to be captured. They would have dragged him around the column through the streets. Well, they did with Mussolini. Yeah, yeah, like they did with Mussolini. Yeah. Yes. Now, as the war, where I forgot because you went beyond it. But where would, did you say you were on VE Day? You were right in that, pretty much. That was that about the time of that. Uh, in in Shire, at the time of the uh, end of the war. That was the point that was established by the federal government by the army headquarters, yeah. that we were not to move be beyond Stop Shia, right there. Right there. Yeah. As I say, we had to wait eight, nine days before the Russians came up. Yeah. Then we tried to have the party came and the, yeah. the, the oh, second right. one that didn't, was what that was. didn't take place. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how the big boys can decide that line and they could have easily, it seems to me, Churchill and Roosevelt have said to Stalin, Move back, move back. Yeah, I think for the last, uh, Roosevelt at that time was pretty sick. Yes, he was He was not well. He was not a well man, and I think the Stalin pulled the wool over his eyes. Well, from all I've read, I think that may be true, yeah, yes. I'm pretty sure that was yeah. the took place. But, uh, it's, it's an epi episode in my life that uh, I don't forget. I don't know how you can. That's, that's, that's something. That's the worst parts of it, you know. That's, that's very, uh, you, you never want to see any of these camps. When, when, uh, when did you get the orders or, or at least be told that you could go home? I got that in, uh, uh, in February. February 46? 46, yeah. yeah. 
I was there at uh, Rosenheim for 10 months. Yeah. So as I say, uh, from February, March I left, and until the 1st of October when they turned it back to the government. Yeah, yeah. And when were you discharged? I was discharged in uh, Fort, Fort Devens, Maine, on the 19th of March. 46. Yeah. And uh, I was in a, uh, an MP group that I came home with. And uh, the head, head of the group was uh, Bill Mahoney. And his father, as I told you, was uh, police chief in Newton. So every cop in Newton knew who I was <laughs> <laughs> when I got home. They all knew me. <laughs> and Bill stayed on there until he retired from the Newton Police Department. Now, was it difficult? Because every, all these GIs are coming home. I would wonder, uh, for a period of time, it must have been difficult to get a job. Yeah, it was. It was uh, right, right off. Of what I did, I applied to at Boston College at that time. At, yeah. at that time, the business school, and uh, I went there for I attended. I didn't stay long enough to get a degree, but I stood long enough how to read the bottom line. That's a good point. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that <laughs> that's the first thing to learn. That was the more important thing to learn. To know, more, know the bottom line. <laughs> All right, there, Andy. <laughs> That's good. That seemed to work out pretty well for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So now, just briefly, take us through the last, the, the, the working career, what, till 83. What, how did, how'd you end up in Kennebunk, for example? How, what? Well, I, I worked for two Boston Ford dealers. Oh, yeah. I got to uh, work for them until 65. And a friend of mine said that, uh, Hansen McPhee, who were the distributors for New England, or VW, were looking for a man as a dealer development manager, which would go out and talk to them. And uh, so uh, I went over and applied. So uh, I met John McPhee and uh, so forth, and uh, he hired me on the spot. <coughs> and so I left there, and uh, I went out from 1946, as it was, to 1948, I put 12 dealers in New England. And what you had to do was go talk to the bankers first. Who's the guys got the money? Good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the first thing I did, was go and find out from the bankers who's got money. You've got to talk to money people. Well, that makes you know, sense, yeah. You've got to talk to people uh, that don't have any. <laughs> that's the uh, bottom line again. <laughs> the, the bottom line, yeah, that's right, Paul. So I worked, uh, uh, John had given, had given me, uh, I said, John, I want a franchise. I said, I come over here and I want a franchise. In the meantime, I've been saving my nickels and dimes, you know, and uh, putting them away. And uh, yeah, yeah. so I had a little bit of money. And so he says, yeah, we'll give you uh, your franchise. You finish up and do a good job for us, he said, the franchise is yours. I said, and so I looked around, traveling all around New England. I said, you know, there's soccer main up there by the river. I said, Benita would like that, about the ocean. And uh, so uh, time came that VW bought out Hanson McPhee. So uh, 
they came to me and they uh, said to me, I said, well, I said, we will honor your uh, commitment that you, uh, that you were given. And I said, but we would be very happy, he said, if you would stay with the corporation. He said, we got plans for you. And I said, uh, well, give me a week to think it over. Well, uh, I, I wasn't thinking it over at all, but I couldn't just say no, no, no or right off, you know. I was <laughs> telling him that I was thinking about it. I wasn't. So I said, no, and uh, I already had this all figured out up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lo and behold, they, uh, they, they came up in from New York, from New Jersey. It was, uh, the Volkswagen they people? They came up yeah. to visit me, and uh, I told them. I said, well, no, I said, I prefer to. Uh, I always say, you can't work. You can't make any money, Joe, working for somebody else. And famous I, words, famous uh, words. Yes, yes. You never make money working for someone else. And uh, so I established the franchise here and uh, built the building. Oh, you built that building? I built the original yeah. building. Yeah. Yes, I built that building. It cost me over $100,000 to build yeah. that building. Which was now, you know what it cost to get into a building now and what they want? Oh, I don't even dare think. Two or three million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is today. Is that, any, is that where uh, the Subaru place is? Uh, no, just up the street from West Subaru. Oh, just up the street. I can't. I tried to remember where that uh, was in my head. Up north. It was, but yeah. there was very little else along there in those days. There was no other. Well, I needed a piece of property, so at that time I see Nick's contrast, and uh, he had he was thinking of buying a piece of property up there that I was looking at. So he said, Jim, I'd like to buy the house that's on the property. And I said, Well, Nick, I said, oh, all right. I said, look. We'll go 50-50 with the property. And I said, I'll take my two and a half acres and you can have the other two uh, and uh, two acres or so. I, I said, I don't need that. So that's how it ended up. I'll be Nick done. Nick and I buying the, yeah. <laughs> Poor Nick is dead now, it's conscious. Yeah. So then along came uh, Subaru and uh, Ernie Bach. Oh, wicked man to do business with. <laughs> oh, 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 I tell you. Uh, but, you know, uh, he, he's such a sort of person, you could never back down from him. Yeah. You had to be on the same level as he. And he could, people got frightened of him, the dealers. I never got frightened of him. I never frightened anybody. So, <laughs> I went through a whole rigmarole with him in 1978. I got the Subaru franchise. He said, I want a building. So I put a building up for him. I said, well, I'll give him a building. But I said, I'm not building a $100,000 building for him. So I contacted the Diamond Lumber people. And uh, they had a franchise uh, out in the Springfield, Mass, I guess it was, uh, Diamond Lumber or something. Like that. Yeah. They had homes you could prefabricate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Home. So I, instead of spending a hundred thousand, I spent forty thousand dollars. I put the thing up. I said, "Now you're happy." <laughs> <laughs> so you got Subaru here for a lot less than you paid for Volkswagen. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> all. Uh, uh, so Shipley so bought me out. That's right. Yeah. He bought me out in, uh, with Jim Kidoyle. Yeah. They were partners. Jim Boyle and then uh, finally ended up in divorcing each other. Uh, I knew it would happen, 
you know, no, <laughs> except that he had an eagle that was like, like this, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so Ernie blocked like this, too. He lost a lot of ego. No, they had a lot of ego you had to pass through. But uh, it, it all worked out uh, in the end. Uh, that then John Pelzelver bought it. and I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. John died. He yeah. bought uh, Atlantic Ford. Yeah. And uh, then they bought that out. And, uh, Gosh, think what that strip is worth today. Oh, I don't know. From one end to the other there. Oh, well, probably a lot of you probably about mm, multi millions of dollars. You're probably talking hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars or more to buy that kind of property today. Or more, I think. Or more, yeah. No cheap property around anymore. Well, especially on Route One. Yeah, that's it. There isn't. Well, now I don't know how much more time, but anybody here have questions for Jim since we're here and he's certainly I've asked some questions but he's certainly gone in all kinds of fascinating directions but he knows where he's going did you want to stop him at any point and ask anything anything that you've missed what year did you get married Jim I got married on September 8 1948 I was married in Charlottetown Prince Edward Island oh that now didn't your wife have Connections up that way. She was born there. That's why I knew it. Yes. How yeah, did she you was born her? in Prince Edward Island. Yeah. How did you meet her? I met her in uh, Dedham, Mass, at a dance hall. That's how I met her. Well, all the your youth, a lot of them are up, up there from the Maritimers. They yeah. call themselves Maritimers. Yeah. They're very close knit people. The Maritimers, yeah, and uh, they always met in Brookline at Orange Hall. That's one of the you mean the ones that come down here? Yeah, well, they'd have the dances. Yeah, yeah. But this, she came down because she had a, uh, she had a boyfriend uh, up there, and I guess he would become very overpossessive. <laughs> so she told her father, she said, I, I can't stand this guy anymore. He said, uh, so she, he called a friend of his he grew up with that had a construction business down in Malden, Mass. So she went down and lived with he and his wife. And uh, so they, his family, the friend, they took her out to, uh, well, not, uh, no, what, Son the Charles, what was the name of the place? Moultrie's. Moultrie's on the Charles. And uh, the funny part of it was, I, I was out there with a, a friend of mine who lived in Newton, and we went out to there because we had been going through here, there, and everywhere, and <laughs> so lo and behold, uh, I get, it got 11 o'clock and I said, Bob was talking to these two girls and lo and behold, I ran over and said, I said, Bob, I said, I'm ready to go home. And uh, he said, well, give me 15 minutes more. He said, I'm talking to these young ladies and I said, all right. So I went over towards the wall. I said, I'll go over and sit down there and I looked up and I spotted Benita. And I said, gee, I said, she's a good-looking girl. <laughs> I said, so I said to her, I sat down, I, go, I said, would you care to dance? Well, four, 20 years later, she said to me, what do you think I came here for? <laughs> 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 so any, anyway, I asked her and so forth. And so we started to go, ready to go home. And uh, Bob said, 
says, Jim, he says, you don't mind, he said, we take a couple to the rapid transit station in Forest Hill? I said, no. He said, I, I said, I'll wait, I'll wait outside the door. And they said, all right. He said, I, was, I was driving a car. I had a 41 Lincoln. Uh, oh, my God, that big car. Yeah, that's, that was a classic. Yeah. It was a classic car. I bought it used when I got back in the store. What a gas hog. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, so the girls get in the car, and uh, before that, uh, they said to me, this, uh, I said, you know, this is the girl I just uh, danced with. <laughs> and you know what I was dancing with her? I said to her, I, 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 I detected right off the accent. You know, she had a real down Scottish type yep, accent yep, that yep. people have from down there. And I spotted it right off. And uh, she said, if you don't know where I'm from, I said to her, oh, you're down from the ice. That <laughs> <laughs> was Nova Scotians. That's what they always said. The note. All the nurses, the yeah. men, the hospitals in Boston were all Nova Scotians. Sure they were, yeah. Yeah, they were Novies. And she, she looked at me and said, no, I'm not a... Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, whatever it was, a fish or something. And she said, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a uh, islander, something islander. Uh, what do you remember, Jim? Spot islander? Huh? Spot. No, no, uh, 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 something island. She said, I'm a what I got. They're pretty uh, proud of their. Heritage, yeah. no doubt about that. Now, her people came to uh, Canada in 1790 from uh, Scotland. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a pretty strong affiliation. And his mother, his wife, she was an Acadian, and they came to Nova Scotia. No, they came to uh, New Brunswick in 1675. So both families been in Canada quite a number of I years. I should say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's where Tom is. Tom would be here. So Tom's up there. He's up visiting his cousin up in Ottawa. Oh, good for him. She's a crown. She's a lawyer. She's a crown prosecutor up there. Good person to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now speaking of that, the other two boys. Here's uh, Jim here, and you've mentioned Tom. Where are the other two? The other two ones in uh, Wy uh, Wyoming. No, one's in Phoenix area. Really? Goodyear. He lives in Goodyear. That's Richard. Oh, the Richard's the out there, okay. Yeah. Richard is 63. Now, David, if he was living, he'd be 70. That's the boy over there on the left. Way over. He'd be 70 this year. And, uh, and uh, who am I missing? Oh, Bob's out in uh, Michigan. He's in Michigan? Yeah, he works for a uh, contracting company. Does They do a lot of business with the uh, Army, oh, Navy, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all that. Did he, he did he retire from the service? Or did he yeah, get... Yeah, 29 years. 29 years, yeah. He was, as a matter of fact, that's how it, we, I got so often down to... Uh, 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 Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, you went down there occasionally? Yeah, they, they moved down there, and he was a commanding officer there at the, in Huntsville for three years. Oh, and uh, so I used to go down every year you know, yeah, to visit yeah. with him. But uh, he got a job. It was got to the point when Obama come in, and uh, he wanted to get rid of all the colonels. He was a full colonel. 
and he would have, would have come up for a one star. And uh, they just about, either you retired or they're going to give you the pink slip. He got rid of all the senior colonels. What was My the, colonels, no. What was the reasoning behind that? All that money was to go into other programs. I his, see. Saving his favorite programs. That's where the money went. From the, yeah. He starved the army. That's what he really did, the services. But that's why this man building it back up again. When you're, you're confronting some really dangerous people right now. Well, yeah. say the least. And you've got to be prepared for that. Uh, but I, I'd hate to be in the next war. Well, there won't be anybody left. I'm afraid not. Yeah. I'm afraid but I think not. they're all at the point, Joe. They don't. No one dares to pull the trigger. Well, thank heaven. But uh, uh, sooner or later, somebody may make a mistake. That's what happens. A lot of a lot of those things happen on, on mistakes. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, now well, I, I I just am struck. Always struck any time that I visit St. Martha's, usually for a funeral. Yeah. You're the man who was up on. Are you still doing that? I retired at 95. Oh. I told Father, what a fellow, and I said, Look, I said, I've served these funerals, I said, for 20 years, I have done so forth. And I said, I'm getting a little bit to the point. I said, You need to find somebody else. So. <laughs> They found somebody else. <laughs> so I, I retired. I said, well, I, I think I, it's much I, deserved. I much deserved. Yeah. I was a lecturer and a, a, a minister of Holy Communion down there for 40 years. Amazing. Yeah. Well, just about the time you moved. What, what, you moved here in 68? 68. 68, yeah. yeah. Uh, 51 years. Yeah. I, I, as a way to wrap this up since we bothered Jim for an hour and a half. My pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure to listen to you. Well, I don't know whether it is or not. But uh, I mentioned that paper that I just gave you. The last paragraph of this, uh, the, the kid had a sense of how to end it. And I think it's appropriate to end with how he ends that paper. And uh, this, he kind of sums up the experience of meeting you. Uh, without a doubt, Mr. Pastorelli has been a shining example of a good man to me, and I immensely enjoyed my time with him. He deserved every medal he received and more. In the spirit of religion, he reminded me of this Bible verse, quote, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father's heaven. That's from Matthew chapter yes. 5. Yes. Mr. Pastorelli was and is a shining light for patriotism, morality, and kindness wherever his travels may take him. God bless him. God bless the men and women who have and are serving in the military, and God bless America. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful, wonderful That's a fine thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real, real... Well, he, he, he ended with a flourish. Well, he did. He's a good writer. What's he doing now? He's still in graduate school, I think. He graduated two years after 
YCCC and then went to a four-year college. And I, that was five or six years ago, and I think he's still uh, doing that. This, this is an amazing piece of uh, military history right here. Yeah. The, uh, I found uh, that apparently your 71st Division had many reunions so fairly re recently. There's a picture in there. Yeah, I see this here. Yeah, that's 2012. That was down in Huntsville at the... Oh, uh, that was where you went? At the Redstone Arsenal. That was what left. They had two meetings afterwards. Yeah. But uh, no one went to speak of hardly. Well, by then, everybody, everybody was in their 90s. Oh, everybody was in their yeah. 90s. They yeah. Too, uh, all, all too old to travel. Yeah, yeah. And so I still had a bit of a telephone uh, with the man that was in the 14th Regiment. No kidding, isn't yes, it? Yes, he was a, uh, uh, I think he was an officer, I think. And he was at Livingstown uh, in Huntsville. So I got introduced to him, and he talked to me on the phone. That's kind of a last camaraderie yeah, that this, there is. This is, our, this is the, uh, the meeting we have. Yeah, the last you're one. it. I'm it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I've looked forward to this for, well, since you and I first talked. A good thing. A very good thing. Uh, and thank you for being with us too, Jim. Yeah, we thank our good, my wife is good oh, friends here. Pass that on, and you can thank look you through. You've seen that probably, me. but. Huh? Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. She's a literary type person, and I thought that she might get. Uh, well, I think it's excellent. Uh, you know, there are so few. I stopped doing that thing over at the college four years, five years ago, uh, and I normally would have five to eight. World War II uh, veterans come into the classroom uh, at various times during the semester, try to get somebody from the Army and the Navy and spread yeah. it out, and from Pacific and uh, Europe. But until, well, five years ago, it was getting harder and harder to get folks in because of age, oh. and also, uh, most of them by then were giving up driving, uh, and I, I just didn't feel safe asking folks to drive. One guy came in from Exeter every time, came in three times over a period of four or five years. One guy drove in from Portland, and I thought I was putting him or them and everybody else on the highway at, uh, <laughs> at some kind of mercy, you know, it wasn't a good thing. And, uh, but it was the amazing thing about that experience, every time, every time that happened, that class, uh, and a speaker would come in to speak to them, it was the most amazing uh, bonding of young people and this, the man, and occasionally a woman, that they considered a hero. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had hugs, and it was just a wonderful thing. Uh, sadly, that can't happen anymore because there just aren't that many who are able to get to those well, things. Well, uh, right now, Joe, as of 19, six, uh, 2016, there was about 500,000 World War II veterans left out of uh, 16 million. Think about that. They're uh, dying at the rate of 3,500 a day. 3,500 a day. Right. 
I would guess that they're probably, as, as of now, probably about 300,000 are left. And then, obviously, it speeds up as the months oh, go on. It speeds up as time goes yeah. on. Yeah. Not too many left around. No, you know, no, so. no. And whether I'm going to be here next year or not, who knows? Well, you darn well better be. There's going to be a big celebration, I'm sure. Well, uh, they're planning it next year. <laughs> they're planning a big celebration. And, there should be. And uh, we'll have people to come. Yeah, we'll well, that's that's people. a fine thing. All my good friends uh, like to come, have them come. It's, uh, I hope I live till then. I, I keep asking the good Lord, I said, now, look, is it possible I can live to 100? I said, after that, I said, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jim, for everything. It's my pleasure. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it very much. As we close, I just wanted to make a note on reopening plans. We're all hearing more and more about the state and country reopening with restrictions for our shared health and safety during the COVID-19 pandemic. What that means locally to Kennebunk and Maine generally is discussions surrounding tourism, for instance, restaurants, beaches, stores, and hotels. For now, the museum plans to reopen to the public on July 1st, 2020. Coincidentally, July 1st also happens to be the museum's 84th birthday. We'll be announcing more information on safe reopening guidelines very soon, and we'll see you there at the museum. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Brick, brought to you by the museum's proud business partners. Questions, comments, and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org. Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.